Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. All right, so we talked last time about neat behavior patterns and about habituation, um, which is a nice introduction into the sort of phenomenon part of the course, phenomenon part of the course, the idea that the stuff that talks about learning as a, a process and a product. Um, today, and for the next, what will seem like forever, we <laughs> talk about classical conditioning. Um, so, there's Ivan Pavlov. So Pavlov was working on digestion, uh, not just his lunch, but he was working on looking at how animals digested food, looking at, uh, and he was feeding dogs, which he, and he, with these dogs, he had, um, remember this is 1903. He's, he's got tubes right up into their snout underneath, okay, so he could collect saliva, because he was looking at the role of saliva in digestion. If you don't know this, in fact, saliva contains an enzyme called salivary amylase that breaks down starches into sugars. So, Pavlov was working on this as an automatic. Well, the first thing is, he found that the dogs, there were some anecdotal reports in his lab that when the dogs saw the people that were coming to load the feeding machines, which would put meat powder in the dogs' mouths, that they would salivate. Because he's collecting saliva, so you actually see it. And then, the machine itself makes a noise when it feeds the animal. It makes a buzzing sound. Okay. Uh, it's a mechanical device. Uh, and one day, they didn't feed the... They, 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 they didn't put enough uh, meat powder in the uh, machine, or it got stuck, or some such thing. And the animals were being fed, but they were still salivating every time the buzzer happened. There was no bell. It was a buzzer. So, I, I don't really know what the idea of that it's ringing a bell. I really honestly don't. Uh, <coughs> A friend of mine and I have a theory. There's a picture of Pavlov's lab where there actually is a bell. And I think people get, get it from there. But the bell is like a school bell. It's like for Pavlov to call lab meetings. So I really don't... But that's the only thing any of us can figure out. So it's probably not a bell. I'm pretty sure... Well, it, he doesn't mention it as a bell in his book. Um, he actually figured that a lot of dogs' behavior may have included this conditional redirection of a reflex. Because remember, there's a reflex. When you get food put in your mouth, you... Salivate, you being a human, you being a dog. That's how we're built. It's to start the digestion. Like I said, there's an enzyme in saliva. Did you ever do this in high school, like biology? You take an unsalted soda cracker, you put it on your tongue, and you just let it sit there, and it starts to break down. You don't chew on it, you just let it sit there, and it starts to taste sweet because the starch and the sugar, the starch in the cracker, after about, 30, about 60 seconds, gets broken down by an enzyme in your saliva that turns it into simple sugars. Right? It's one of the reasons that, you know, people worry about giving their kids, uh, I don't know, like candies and stuff. Giving your kids chips is bad for their teeth, too. Because if they're sitting there in their mouth, you know, kids will just chew on stuff. <laughs> Since they're more than about 60 seconds, it starts to get broken down into sugar. What's your damn teeth? That's all I ask. Unlike fly, I don't know. Fly, don't you hate when you go to the dentist? Well, have you been flossing? No, look, nobody flosses. I don't have the time. What about when you're watching TV? Well, I'm busy drinking then. Um, so, I'm, no, I'm not flossing. And they, they, they look at you like you're some sort of, you know, 
you know, you're one step from Hitler if you don't floss, right? So it's, but I mean, that happens, we're hooked up that way, but then we can, what Pavlov figured happened is that the, 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 the reflex for food into the mouth is redirected conditionally, so it's conditional on the fact that the animal had the buzzer predicting the food, okay? So it's a conditional redirecting of reflex. Does that make sense? So it's conditionally redirected. So he said a lot of, of the dog's behavior would be <clears throat> involved in this conditional redirecting of reflexes, or, or as he called it, conditional reflexes. It's funny, <laughs> the title of his book, and that's an actual scan of, of, the, of his book, I have it in my office. By the way, if you ever want to go to sleep, you might want to read that book. Part of it is because it's translated from Russian, and, it, and part of it is because it's about the original work on conditional reflexes. Yeah, conditional reflexes. It was mistranslated as conditioned reflexes. It's funny to think that now because we think of conditioning and conditioned as words for learning, which they are now, except that that's not what he said. The person who translated his Russian work uh, mistranslated. So that's where we get the term conditioning. Kind of amazing when you think about it. He did win a Nobel Prize for this physiology and medicine. So I mean, it's not like he was a loser. Pavlov was so important, in fact, that when the Bolsheviks took over in 1917, in November of 1917, in the glorious October Revolution in November, different calendar there. Um, they killed most of the... You know what happens when revolutions happen? You kill the intelligentsia and you kill the scientists. You know why? Because they're smart enough to maybe start a counter-revolution. They didn't kill him. They gave him a lot. They said, oh, you give your own institute. No problem. You're famous. So that's how famous and important he was. That the Bolsheviks who killed the Red Terror, they killed a lot of people. Right? Not him. He was... They said, oh, you're Ivan Pavlov. You, you can hang around. Ivan Petrovich Pavlov. Petr- I think it's Petrovich. Russian's cool, right? Because middle, your middle name is just your father's name with itch at the end. So I would be David Richardovich, which I actually am, David Richard. And then if, if you're a girl, if you're a woman, it's your mother's name. right? And it'd be Pavlov, but his wife would be Pavlova. Russian's kind of cool that way. And Vladimir Putin, and we don't talk about him. Um, <laughs> because he's kind of crazy. Talk about bad Russians. Uh, okay, so this happens, it's, this blows the lid off a lot of things in psychology, right? Because psychology at the time, you've got a lot of people doing introspection. You've got, but then you've got people like Watson becoming head of the APA. This stuff comes out. So there's this real tension now between the sort of almost Freudian approach slash sort of introspectionist approach. And the really basic sort of learning and conditioning approach. A Pavlov was, though Pavlov was no behaviorist. Anybody that calls Pavlov a behaviorist, I don't think really has read Pavlov. Because he certainly talked about mental events. Okay, he talked about representation. I think we'd say he was an animal cognition psychologist today, or associative learning <coughs> psychologist today. We certainly wouldn't, I don't think we'd call him a behaviorist. I don't think we'd call him certainly an influence behavior. Um, okay, some key terms. First one is the unconditioned stimulus. This, this is always called in intro books, the UCS, and I don't know why, because no one calls it that. Everybody calls it the US. 
I don't know why, but it's always intro books. UCS. No one ever, you, you read a paper, no one calls it UCS. Um, this is a biologically re relevant stimulus. Meat in your mouth. Right? That without prior learning elicits an unconditioned response. Again, a UR, not usually a UCR. Though you'll see that typically in intro books. So food, salivate. You're hooked up that way. Everybody's hooked up that way. Every member of a species is hooked up that way. And it's the same way, basically. The conditioned stimulus. It actually, if you think of it as conditional, it makes so much more sense if you understand the idea of conditional probabilities <laughs> and stuff. But, oh well. A conditioned stimulus is neutral stimulus. So the buzzer, the buzzer. And with many pairings of the CS and the US, that's the CS overlaps in time, but, but, is, but starts before the US. So that could be a bell. It elicits a conditioned response. It's actually pretty easy to do this, too, to set, to set these kind of things up. I mean. Um, when, when, when Madeline was, was uh, a day old and she'd just come home from the hospital, like just been born, when you touch a baby's foot, their <laughs> toes curl up, right? That's, that's, that's a reflex. And a newborn. A newborn, you put your finger in their, in their hand, they actually don't typically right away grasp your hand. That's a great moment, by the way. It's like, oh, my kid's holding my hand, and actually, no, that's just a reflex. But, um, sometimes psychology destroys the mystery in front of parenting, you know? <laughs> she said, Mama. No, she's testing out phonemes. Um, but. Touch the, touch the foot, and with a newborn baby, their, their toes will curl. So, first thing, one of the first things I did when she came home is I touched her, I think it was her right thigh, and at the same time, then, before, then touched the bottom of her foot. Did it again, did it again, four times, fifth time, touched her thigh, her toes curled. And that was, that's, that's not magic, it, but to me it was kind of neat, because it's like, oh look, classical conditioning. Right? So I immediately threw it into a Skinner box, <laughs> a joke, a joke. Couldn't afford one. But the thing is, basically, pretty much, and this is in a, again, this is in a human, but we could do this, and of course, a non-verbal human that's just been 24 hours into the world. But you could do this with a one of you guys or me, right? You can do it with, uh, you know, when you hit your knee and you get the your. Leg goes, you could, you could do, that, do it with that easy. All you got to do is play a sound, and the, the hardest part is actually re reliably hitting the right set of uh, nerves to get the, the, the reflex. Four or five times, the next time you play that sound, your leg will, you'll be surprised because it'll happen. That's the neat thing about it. It's very sensible. Remember, you know, biologically, evolutionarily, exceedingly sensible to behave this way. You're predicting in the short term the future. So basically, any reflex, simple reflex like this, can be hooked up to a biologically irrelevant stimulus. Okay? Almost anything can be hooked up that way. Today we concentrate on a few different pe preparations just because they're very reliable. Right? So no one really is doing 
the stuff with banging someone's knee because you have to totally hit it in the right place. It's kind of complicated to do. Uh, if you've ever been to the doctor and they do that, they test that reflex. Even they can't get it all the time with the little hammer they have. Right? So one, a very common one is human uh, eye blink conditioning. I've talked about that, where you have usually a tone predicting a puff of air into the eye, and you blink. Also done with rabbits, by the way. Uh, rabbits have a, an internal eyelid, an extending membrane that will, will, will shut. And again, you can just measure that. Put an electrode there that just measures the, 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 the muscle uh, contraction. Very simple. So that's one that's done, not as much as it used to be. Uh, used to be the most common one probably now. The, two, the most common one probably in rats called CER, which is a conditioned emotional response, which people that are behaviorists don't like the term emotion. Uh, I'm not quite sure I like it, frankly. Now, CER is a strange thing. So let me explain it to you because, and I want you to understand this because a lot of the data we're going to hear about in the next four weeks probably is going to be about CER. So CER works like this. The first thing you do is you train a rat to press a bar. Let's say on, and this is going to be something, you don't know a lot about opera conditioning yet, but you must know enough that you have the prerequisites for the course. So what we're doing is let's say we're going to have the, the rat push a bar probably on a variable interval, which means... So the first response after 10 seconds, and then 20, and then 30, and then 10, and then... 15, and then 25, and then 40, and then uh, 1, and then 39, and then 38. Those numbers should average out to 20, if I was doing that properly in my head. So that's a variable interval 20 schedule. It actually maintains really nice steady behavior. Really nice steady behavior. So does a variable ratio. Variable ratio behaviors are the same way, except it's not after time, it's after pushing, uh, it's, it's just the number of responses. You ever watch somebody play uh, slot machines at a casino it's just a variable racial schedule there's no skill involved every so often it just pays off people just pumping quarters and dimes and nickels and, and not dimes and nickels usually loonies and fibers <clears throat> so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to train this rat to, 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 to push a bar this is not this is just so we can get something we can measure you get nice steady state responding so we can then measure responses per unit time. We could use five second bins or something. It doesn't really matter. But the nice thing is you get so if we get time along this axis and then we get responses here. Okay. So once the animal is consistently responding it's, gonna, it's actually pretty consistent. It's going to be high and consistent. That's not conditioned emotional response, by the way. All we're doing now is getting something we can change so we can measure it. Okay. Next thing we have is we have, now we're going to do the emotional response part. We train the rat, well, we, we show him a light, a little house light comes on, or it could be a sound. And we electrify the floor. By the way, this isn't horribly... Un it's not pleasant for the rat, but it's not like it's an electric chair. You're not trying to kill the animal. You're trying to make it a little uncomfortable. And when you set these things up, typically what you do, I've set these things up before you actually put your hand in and you turn the shock generator on until you feel a tingle. Like It's not like you do it until it hurts. 
because you're dealing with something that's a thousand, uh, one one thousandth your size, you're not trying to kill it. You're just trying to give it a little, oh, that's not good. Okay. So now this is where we have the classical conditioning part. We are pairing the light with the shock. These, these, these cages have um, floors that are uh, like wire mesh, and you can just run current through them. So it's, it's not like it's um, the whole floor is metal, because then underneath that, there's uh, sawdust that you can change out, because they'll poop and pee in there too, especially when you shock them. So you do that. Now, now we're going to test to see how good our conditioning is to the light. We're going to play the light alone, or present the light by itself. Right here. There we go. Remember, this is after a number of light and tone and light pairings. What do you think happens to responding when the animal is presented with this light? Don't even worry about responding. What happens to the animal? And you can be subjective if you want. Try to put, I said, don't go no way do this, but put yourself in the animal's head, in the rat's head. What's the rat feeling when it sees the light? No, no, because it's going to get the light by itself. We're testing it with the light out by itself. But the light predicts the electric shock. What's the rat going to, quote, feel? Anxious? It's anxious, scared, yeah, sure. Oh, shit, the floor's going to be on fire in a second. <laughs> right? So he's, he's going to be frightened, perhaps scared. Uh, anxious is another way to put it. What's going to happen to his responding? Now, remember, he's responding on that thing to get food. What's going to happen to his responding if he gets frightened? What do you think? Is it going to go up or down? What do you think will happen? There's only two answers. Well, three. It could stay exactly the same. Okay, who thinks it's going to stay exactly the same? It's clearly not that because I just threw that one in at the end. Who thinks it's going to go up? And who thinks it's going to go down? Yeah, it's going to go down. If it worked... If the animals actually learn to fear the light, we're going to get less responding when the light's on. And then some light goes on there, and uh, where'd my black marker go? So the light goes on here, and then we'll put the light going off here. I'll probably still respond some. Light goes off and goes back to responding. Now, what we can do is we could actually now measure this. This is the beauty of this. We can get a number. We can take the responding during the light. And divide it by the responding when there is no light. And we get what's called the suppression ratio. And if the suppression ratio is 1, Oh, that's right. Sorry, I think I've got that back. Yeah, sorry. It should be exactly the opposite of what I wrote. No light and light. So if there's... Now, if, there, if, if, if we get zero, we have complete learning. We, we've got this beautiful measure of complete learning. If we got one, what do we have? It hasn't learned a damn thing. Right? 
So we get a number between 0 and 1. And it's an actual, those of you guys mostly taken 21, 27. What we have here is a ratio scale. It's beautiful. It may seem a little mean to the rat. Remember the rats? You ordered them from a company that makes lab rats. And when you buy 10, you usually get one free. And I'm not kidding. It's very common that they throw an extra one in. And they FedEx them to you. And it's the strangest thing getting a box of rats. <laughs> I had a lab back in Newfoundland when I was there, and I remember small school but our size, and they delivered these rats. I got this call from one of the secretaries, uh, Dr. Brad, Beth, because they never call me Dave. They said, there's a box here for you. I said, okay, I'll come down. Keep your stuff inside moving, right? I said, yeah, those are my rats. What? I said, yeah, I ordered some rats. I come down, I said, oh yeah, look, it's from Charles River. Another company, uh, there's a subsidiary called Quebec, well, Getty, no, no. I signed the thing from FedEx, and it was fine. And I, she said, well, and I said, look, if you look in, there's a little window here. There's a little pile of rats. And they're so cute when they're like that. Because they, they, rats are actually really neat animals. And they, they, they sleep in a pile. So you get like 11, usually, because you ordered 10. Rats sleeping all on top of each other. And they put some food in there. And you say, how they put water in it? They actually um, put gelatin in water. So they got water jello. So they can literally FedEx them. Uh, the FedEx driver was creeped out more than anybody, even more than the secretaries. <laughs> Here you go, buddy. You know? But uh, it was, it's pretty cool. And they're, they're, these lab rats are, sort of standard lab rats are pretty uh, cheap. They're not very expensive at all. You can know, order uh, certain genomes if you want. For this kind of work, you wouldn't. It doesn't matter. But usually, I, I want 10 males between 250 and 275 grams apiece. And you get them the next day. And they're not expensive. They're like 10 bucks a piece. Right? So it's pretty cool. So yeah, I mean, poor little guys, they, yeah, they get shocked a little bit, yeah, but it's just uncomfortable. It's not enough to hurt them. Because that's not what you want. You don't want to, them to stop responding at all. The worst thing you can do is be mean to one of your subjects in an animal study. Because you want to get good data. So even if you don't give a shit about animal welfare, and most people do this kind of work, do care, but even if you don't care, completely selfishly it makes sense to be reasonable with them, because if you're not, you're not going to get good data from them. So you get this beautiful suppression ratio. That's really nice. So you get an actual number. Does everybody understand how suppression or conditioned emotional response works? So less responding means more learning. That's the weird part of this. In fact, no responding means perfect learning. So if you've got a paper, and a lot of you guys will, well, many of you guys perhaps will have papers that use CER as a, as a, as a preparation. Um, they might present suppression ratios, but they also may very well present graphs, and you'll see, of responding, and you'll look at that and go, well, that looks like it's less responding. How can that be more learning? Well, it's the same thing with uh, habituation. Less responding means more learning. So think of it that way. Questions about how CER works? You yeah. said uh, with that equation right there, yeah. zero means that they learned, right? Yes, because you have zero responding here and some responding here. That's why I realized, wait a second, if that was on the bottom, you could have undefined numbers. That's why I always forget which way it goes. So, you know, you'd think it's not like I have a PhD in this. Wait, I do. Um, and I still mess this up. So. When we talk about the Rescore the Wagner model, 
I screwed it up in graduate school on a, on a, on a, on a test. And um, my supervisor, I, I, I emailed her a question. I think I told you guys this. And she's like, well, you got to thinking. I said, well, it's funny considering I'm teaching stuff that I got half out of 20 on a test of yours. And she said, you never got half out of 20 on anything. And I said, I can fax it to you. <laughs> got it right here. I'm using it as an example right now in my class. Right? And she was being nice with the half. I think it was because I wrote down a number. <laughs> she was just, or either that or she was making a point. It's like give it a, a one dollar tip on a two hundred dollar bill. It's like yeah, here's a buck. You know, I think that's might have been that's what she was doing. So see, are any other questions? Because if you understand this, there's a lot of data. In fact, stuff we'll talk about almost certainly today that it uses CER and it kind of has to. Okay, you good? You understand how this preparation works? It's a, it's a pain to get set up. Because you got to train the rat first to press the bar, and that's that's just so you can measure something, right? Uh, with humans, a lot of times instead of eye blink, now you'll see SCR, skin conductivity response. Uh, as you probably know, you will small changes in the conductivity of your skin uh, usually are, are, are from um, they're, they're, they're just activation of your sympathetic nervous system. So you might want to, you could use this, uh, could be something like this, where they're, they're, they're getting, it wouldn't be necessarily, where your subjects aren't necessarily getting um, a shock, but they might be getting a loud noise, right? Or, or a flashing of light. It's the same kind of technology is used in the quote light detector, a poly, which I just, you probably don't know what is a light detector, right? You don't see human stuff as much anymore because, frankly, this works the same in rats as it does in us. There's really no need to use humans. The only time you see humans used is there are interesting data about humans that they show learning without awareness, which is really cool. So, Because, you know, eventually someone's going to say, oh, obviously the light is predicting the loud noise. Yeah, I got that. But the weird thing is they start responding as if the light predicts the loud noise before they know that the light predicts the loud noise, before they can actually tell you. So this, is, this learning is implicit. This, this happens. Eventually, yeah, you're aware of it, obviously. Right? Yeah, that's pretty cool that way. But you don't see a lot of human work. What you see mostly, a lot of the stuff is rat stuff, and it's using CER or taste diversions, which for the longest time were thought of as this special learning phenomenon. And I think taste diversions are pretty special and neat and different, but they still follow all the same rules. You still have a CS and a US, you have a CR and a UR, except it takes one day. You take the rat, the CS is the flavor, the US is making the rat sit. And then the next day you give it a choice of the food. You might wonder, how do you make rats sick? Anybody wondering how you make rats sick? Well, there's a couple of ways. Uh, you make them motion sick. You put them on a turntable, and you spin them, and they get sick. Or you can make a motion sick by taking them, and this is sort of a low-rent way to do it. You pick a rat up, and you put its head right between your fingers, and you do this. And it's like a $10 ride at Disneyland, right, for the rat. <laughs> and you're spinning it around. And the good thing is, you know, the rats aren't going to puke, so... <laughs> you just do that, and you go, okay, you look like shit. And you just <laughs> put it back in his cage, and he's fine. It's also a way to disorient a rat if you have to do something like cut its teeth. Um, I remember doing that, God, I was an undergrad, and someone said, you have to cut their teeth. I said, well, I can't cut their teeth. I don't know what to, how do you do that? Well, we have tooth clippers. And, you do, I mean, and if you do it right, it doesn't hurt them. 
because you don't hit the nerves. You just hit because they, they you know their teeth always grow, eh? They they don't. It's like like beavers. They have to be chewing on stuff, and they didn't have enough stuff to chew on in their cages. His graduates didn't say he's going to cut their, their teeth. They said, "Why well, cut their damn teeth? That's weird." He said, well, "How do you do? They're not going to stay still." She, she, she said, "Sure, they will. Watch." Spins it around. Actually, she used the left hand because she had the right hand with the clippers. They went, "Okay, he's fine. Clip, clip." And he was he was fine. You do it wrong though, and they you got to know what you're doing. Yeah, this is why it's good to work in a lab where there's actually a technician that knows what he or she is doing, and you just have to be science girl or science boy. Way easier. It's like when I had to always, you know, change my birds' cages in graduate school, and you get bird shit everywhere. And it's like you know, through the whole the brochure about be a scientist when you grow up. Never mention anything about bird shit. It <laughs> just wasn't anywhere. You know, or having to spin rats around. Or you could give them radiation poisoning. <laughs> That's, uh, so you can give them a dose of radiation. In fact, a lot of the stuff on taste aversion was originally discovered when they were looking at survivability of nuclear wars giving radiation sickness. Uh, or you can just give them lithium. Give them lithium chloride. Lithium will make you pretty sick. And it's cheap. So that's a pretty common technique now, is just give them a, a little dose of lithium chloride, a little injection. And the nice thing is, long CS-US interval, you give them the CS, the food, and then you go, okay, let's see, we can go for lunch, come back a couple hours later, then you make them sick. Like, there's no rush. It's a pretty simple procedure. And the next day, it works. Okay, so that's... Probably the most common thing you see today is CER, but these ones you do see. There's also a pecking at a, there's also a pigeons will peck at a light. This is weird, but if you present, if your CS is a light, okay, and the US is, is access to food, a feeder gets operated. It's in a Skinner box. And these are done in the dark. The beauty of working with, well, we were, rats you always do in the day. Pigeons, you do it in the dark um, because then the only thing they see is that light. And pigeons, for some reason, will peck that light. They don't have to. It doesn't make the food appear any more quickly. But they start pecking at the light. You can measure the number of pecks per unit time. Nice and easy, too. So that's another one that's called. All right. So why does this happen, theoretically? I mean, it makes functional sense all, all, you know, totally. But why does this happen? So Pavlov thought that there were the, C the U.S. and the animals. I guess if he was alive today, he'd probably say representation uh, of the way the world works is replaced by the C.S. He called it stimulus substitution. He goes on at great length uh, in, in, in conditioned reflexes about this. So you've got, uh, let's see, food <coughs> and salivation. Straight up, right? U.S., you are. Pavlov said with the many pairings of the, of the, let's, uh, of the, of the buzzer and food, there's your C.S., it actually replaces this. So you get a direct connection between the conditioned stimulus and the actually unconditioned response that we call it the conditioned response. So it's actually a direct replacement. It's stimulus substitution. For this to be true, there have to be centers, according to Pavlov, he said there were centers in the brain for representing different stimuli and different responses. 
This was his theory. Remember, there was no neuroscience then. So it was still, you know, Hodgkin and Huxley were still working with giant squid axons. This is a long time ago. So there actually, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, uh, the conditioned response is not always the same as the unconditioned response. If this is the case, the conditioned response must always be like the unconditioned resp uh, response, right? And it isn't always. Uh, it's the case that with drug conditioning, a lot of times the animal's getting ready for the drug. So you have a predicting variable like the... Uh, I talked about this, right? The idea of giving the, the rat uh, you know, in a white chamber or a black chamber and giving it morphine. Right? And the animal sort of gets ready for the morphine. So that's a preparatory response. The response itself, in fact, is exactly the opposite of the unconditioned response. So it's not always at least going to be like that. The idea of sign tracking is an interesting one because it kind of takes this idea into account because this is what sign tracking is. Why does the pigeon peck the light? Because it's, it's putting its behavior towards the conditioned stimulus. But, it doesn't actually explain why. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, it's got a... This is so intuitively pleasing. Um, but it's a weak explanation because there's too many ways that it doesn't work. Now, Pavlov did discover it, so we can give him some credit. A sign tracking is an idea from the 60s, by the way. Um, now, Pavlov was not a psychologist. Pavlov was a physiologist. I didn't believe a medical doctor. So he, he was thinking about physiology. So Pavlov, like I said, thought there were CS and US centers in the brain for different condition stimuli, different condition uh, and unconditioned stimuli. Problem is there aren't. That's kind of an issue. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't certain regions of the brain that are hooked up to respond to certain kinds of stimuli. In fact, that's pretty much how your brain works. But it's not like there is a meat powder center. It's not like there's a buzzer ganglion. It just doesn't work that way. Whenever I think of that, I think of, you know, duff beer fills your Q-zone with flavor. Um, I still, I, I, all I think about now is that Simpsons family, that crossover episode. It's all I'm thinking about all the time. It's so funny. And I'm only halfway through it still. Stewie's really Stewie not understanding how offensive that joke was that he made. And people were offended by that, but it was great. I won't say it because someone will be offended by it. Well, you guys will, but someone on the internet will be, and then there'll be an outcry. Professor says bad thing. Look it up. When Stewie makes a prank phone call. And if you don't get what they're trying to do there, which is to show how Stewie doesn't understand how jokes can be offensive, then you aren't, you've never watched the show. Why are you watching The Family Guy? Okay. Now the question, a cool question here, look. Pavlov figures it's stimulus substitution so that he says the con connection is stimulus response. But it doesn't have to be. It could be stimulus-stimulus, couldn't it? Because it could be that buzzer predicts food, which leads to salivation. Right? Why not? It doesn't seem as parsimonious, but why not? 
it's more of a representational kind of argument, too. Because this is mechanistic. Uh, they're both mechanistic, but I mean, saying that the CS just gets redirected to there, I think, I think of, say, putting these two things together in a representation, saying those two can stimuli go together, which then predicts food, is a little more cognitively complex. Right? It's a neat question, and it's a question that people argued over all the way... Jeez. People still argue over it, though I'm going to tell you about an experiment in a second that answers the question. I don't know why people still argue about it anymore. Um, but this is a neat question. Okay. So if we were to draw a picture, we know this is true, the US to the UR. We know that. That's why there's a solid line there. We know that when I give you Sal I'll give you meat powder in your mouth, I'll give you meat powder, I'll give you a slice of pizza. You're going to salivate. I mean, in your mouth, not just you're seeing the pizza actually is classical conditioning, you start to salivate. Actually, thinking about it, I'm literally salivating right now. If you pay attention to me in class, oftentimes if I start salivating, it's when I'm while lecturing, planning what's for dinner. Which, in this class, I can actually do. This in 3256, I, I know enough, and probably animal behavior. I can be thinking about a completely different thing. <laughs> it's uh, sad, really. But I haven't wasted my life. Uh, so, but it could be Pavlov says the connection is, and, and, and almost everyone for the longest time said the connection was this to this, CS to UR. Now, we call it then the CR, but it's the same response almost always, not in drug conditioning always. Some people, more sort of more of a cognitive approach, said it was a CSUS or a stimulus-stimulus connection. Now, if there are no, now, does that let me understand the, the two positions? It's SR or SS. Okay. Now, if there were real brain centers for meat powder and buzzer and salivate, this would be easy. Well, we'll just sever the connection. It's obviously just these neurons here. We'll just cut them. Unfortunately, the world isn't that simple. Brains are not that easy. So we've got to figure out a clever experimental way of doing this. Ooh. See, think about this. What if we could just get rid of the USUR bond somehow? What if this could happen? If that could happen, if we could somehow experimentally remove a reflex, it doesn't sound easy, but if we could, and then we presented the CS, and we got a response, we know it's a stimulus-response connection. Right? It must be. But if we present the CS after we've somehow removed this connection, and we get no response, then it must be a stimulus-stimulus connection. I love experiments, no matter how they turn out. The results are, tell you something. It's my favorite kind of experiment. So a no result here, actually, like no, no responding, would tell you something. How in the hell are we going to disconnect something that 
like that. Something that's a stimulus response. You're wired up that way. Wow. Well, enter Bob Rescorla. Bob Rescorla is probably the most important learning theorist of the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, I'd say that. That's fair. There, in, in the late 1960s, there was a whole bunch of people all going to the same graduate program. Uh, they were going to University of Pennsylvania. So Penn, not Penn State, but Penn. Um, and they were all in the same year. And it was Barbara Scorla. It was uh, Vin Lalordo, who's Cheryl Reed Elder's uh, PhD uh, supervisor. Uh, there was Sarah Shuttleworth. That's my PhD supervisor. There's, who else was in that group? Oh, Tom Alloway, who ended up being a professor here. And uh, who else? Uh, Peter Holland, who's at Duke. You can hear all these names. Probably you're not going to hear Peter, uh, uh, Tom Alloway much because he came here and there was no lab and stuff. Though Tom was a pretty smart guy. It still is. It just made it sound like he was dead. He wasn't working. He was retired. Only person I've ever met that thought before he said anything. I've never met anybody like that. You know, like he, everything he said was well thought out, even if it seemed like he was off the cut. It was beautiful. It was like you go to a meeting and you go, well, I'll just agree with him because he's probably right. Wonderful. <laughs> At his retirement thing, I said, that. I said, you know, I've only met one person in my life who's exactly the opposite of me who thinks before he says everything. Because I never think. Because, of course, as usual, I would turn anything like that into something about me. But these people, and they were all taught by a guy named Henry Gleitman, who was a big deal, too, in the history of psychology, who was a Tolman student. It was just, it's funny to think in the late 60s, you think of like, everything was changing, including learning theory. I mean, and I really do think it's part of the culture of questioning authority. So it's very neat that way. Uh, Sarah, my supervisor, went on, did her master's at Penn, but went on to the University of Toronto. But uh, the rest of them stayed at Penn and uh, went on and literally changed everything. So this is one of his first experiments as a faculty member. He's a cool guy, totally nice guy. First time I met him, I was giving a poster presentation at a conference in Los Angeles, and I'm standing by my poster, and I'm really thirsty, really thirsty. And I looked at a buddy of mine, John Crystal. I said, I said, they gave me five bucks. Please go pick me up a beer, because there was a a bar at the poster session, because any good conference at the poster sections was bars. He comes back, brings me a beer, and I'm drinking it. I'm slugging the whole thing back because I'm really thirsty. It's a lot of MSG and the Chinese food I had at lunch. And this guy comes up, and he wants to ask me some questions, and I just go like this, and I'm slugging the thing back, and then I, as I realize, I said, oh, that's Barbara Scoiler, and I'm like, he's famous. Oh, like, oh. that's kind of fun. But he's a good guy. I emailed him once a question that a student had in class, and he answered it for me. Wasn't a very good answer, though. Anyway, he said, "Just we'd never do that." Which was the... okay. How are we going to get? And this is a smart guy. How are we going to get rid of a response that's hardwired to a stimulus without physiology? Well, think about CER. This is why I spent so much time explaining CER. The response, in essence, is a startle, isn't it? Right? Oh God, the bad things are coming. It's a startle response. How do you get rid of a startle reflex? Through habituation. Oh. That almost gives me goosebumps thinking about that. About how smart he is. That is so freaking clever. So what are we going to do? We're going to use CER. We're going to train him up. And then one group's going to get habituation. 
and the other group isn't. Now, we're not going to use electric shock. We're going to use a loud noise. Because that's what's used in habituation. You don't use electric shocks. You're not going to habituate to that. But you will habituate to a very loud noise. And you won't get startled anymore. So what Bob Rescorla will have done in this case is in one group, he will remove the connection between the U.S. and the U.R. And the other group, he won't, because he won't habituate them. So let me go through the experiment. Here's the design. Group one, well, let's look at the control group first. The control group in phase one gets light, then noise. Just like this, except here, instead of the light predicting a shock, they get a light and a noise. The noise will also act as a condition suppressor. It works just fine. It's not quite, you know, I think the reason people often use shocks is it's a little more reliable. But noise will work. So why not do that? And then phase two, well, nothing happens in phase two. They're, they're the control group. And then we're going to test them with the light alone in condition suppression or conditioned motion response. In the habituation group, that's the important group, by the way, they get light, then noise, just like this group does. Then they get, in phase two, noise alone. A whole bunch of just noise alone. They're habituating to noises, to, a, to that noise, that loud noise. And we're going to test in the same way, light alone in the CER. So, does everybody understand the experiment? It's a, it's a beautiful, simple, elegant experiment, but it's also kind of heady, you know, it's kind of deep, so I want to make sure you understand, it's an important experiment to understand. You're not that bad, you're okay with this, you get it? Okay, I once had to explain this to a class in Newfoundland for 50 minutes, but you know, it was not the year Dwayne was in that class, by the way, that year they understood it pretty quickly. Dwayne and Eric, who's a prophet in Edmonton now, he's got a PhD as well, They're, they were okay. We used to have that class, sometimes Eric would ask me questions and it got to a point where we were designing experiments together in the middle of class. And then I went, uh, oh, nobody understands this, right? It's back to Eric and I talk. Yep? So the noise that the first group's getting, the second group isn't, it's the same noise that they're getting in phase one? Mm -hmm. Just constant? Yeah, not constant. Remember, just like with, with uh, any habituation experiment, it's like that and then again, it's, it's discrete presentations of a startling stimulus. Yeah. So yeah, you got it, except for the constant thing. It's the only thing that was different. Other questions? Good. Keep asking these questions if you got them. Can you just go over the experiment? Totally. Control group is, a is just a classic case of conditioned emotional response. That's all it is. There's nothing special about it. The only difference is instead of using electricity, we're going to use a loud noise. Loud noises do produce suppression. They just do. So in fact, it would look the data would look like this. Have you ever noticed I always point with my middle finger? I've got to stop doing that. It's... That's easy. Now we test them with the light alone, just like this says here. Just like this says here. Right? Exactly the same. This group here, same training. Then we're going to, in a second phase, in a separate environment, 
environment. It doesn't have to be. Don't worry about that. Uh, we're going to present the noise by itself. And they will habituate to the noise. They will not show any startle to the noise anymore. So in essence, we will have taken away this connection between the stimulus, the US, and the UR. It's gone now. And then we again test them with light alone, just like we did with the first one. We compare suppression. Does that help? Good. Other questions? I want everybody to understand this. Well, that's sort of my goal in most of my classes I teach, but this is a really important experiment. You know, some of them I don't really care if you understand any of it. I'm going to go as quickly as I want. So because you present the noise again yes. in phase two, they okay. don't respond to the light the same way that the control group does? Well, maybe you've read the head. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what we expect to happen. Oh, okay. That's what we expect to happen. <clears throat> and the nice thing is if they respond the same way, we know it's a stimulus response connection. Please. Rats. <clears throat> yeah. It would work with people. Yeah, probably would. That'd be a kind of a neat little honors thesis, actually. That would be a really neat honors thesis. That'd be cool. Anyway, uh, I'm going to save that. All my students have projects now. And uh, I won't be, I'll be on sabbatical next year, unless they don't approve it, in which case... I'll likely blow up the university, so <laughs> it won't be here. Uh, but the year after, yeah, that would be neat to do with people. You don't certainly get the same results, but it would still be neat to do. God, I almost want to run that myself right now. It's so easy to do. I might do that. I'm going to find out first if this has been done, if there's any reason to do it, but. Thank you for that. <laughs> You'll get all kinds of credit. Don't worry. I'll make you like... Stay here next year and then I'll do it with you. Well, mm -hmm. next year and then the year after because I won't be here next year. I'll be on sabbatical or the place that we've been burned down. <laughs> One or the other. Right? Like an office space. It's totally considered reasonable volume. I'll burn down the building. <laughs> I love that movie. Ever tell you guys that a buddy of mine did that to get fired on purpose? He worked at a major, I'm not going to use any name and I won't tell you what company it was, but a very big company. He was a vi an executive vice president at a really big telecom company. That's all I'll say. Okay? And I'm not even going to tell you where. Could be in Britain. Could be in Holland. Could be in Canada. Could be in Brazil. Could be in Mexico. It, it's in a country. <laughs> so they were downsizing and they found out that he found out they were getting um, people that they asked to quit, they were getting, and he was a, paid really well, but he didn't like the job anymore. It was no fun, he wasn't dealing with people so much, and that's where he sort of brought himself up, literally, literally worked himself up the ranks with this company. So he thought, well, they're asking people to retire, they're not at, under, to, to, to get buy-ins, and they gave him like five years' salary. It was like, and that's, that's like a million dollars. Kind of thing. So, like, you, know, you can't volunteer, for, they were asking for volunteers, they were picking people because they were downsizing. My buddy just started, and again, he's an executive vice president at a major telecom company in the world. We'll say that. And he started showing up to work in jeans with holes in them, stopped shaving, started going to meetings late. 
And after, just like an office space, and after two weeks, they said, uh, would you like to buy it? And he said, yeah, I'll take one. So he got it. And now he has a different job and money in the bank. So it's very clever. So office space can save lives. That's what I'm saying. This is one of my favorite experiments ever. This is almost as good as Mons and Dad's. It really is, because it's going to answer an age-old question. Okay, here are the results. You get less suppression, which means more responding. That's why, again, suppression is hard to get your head around. So, in other words, you get more responding um, in the habituation group. Less suppression means so means less evidence of learning, right? So this would be up higher. In fact, you almost get a suppression ratio of one. What that means is the connection must be a stimulus-stimulus connection because you have removed the USUR connection through habituation and you're still getting respond. Nice. Yep. I'm just confused, kind of confused how less uh, responding is more learning. Less responding means you know that it predicts bad stuff. You see? Less responding. Oh. Yeah, that's why, that's why I was spending so much time going over suppression, because it is hard to understand. I remember learning this stuff in a learning class and sitting there feeling having exactly the same reaction you're having. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it is hard. So that's why I went over it for some. So we've in essence removed this, and now we get less responding in the habituation group, or less learning. Sorry, less suppression. Even this confuses me. My response to this is just wow, because I mean, you've done something, first of all, something that people argued over since Pavlov. So early 1900s, is a stimulus, stimulus, is a stimulus response. And the popular answer was, it has to be stimulus response, it can't be stimulus. Stimulus? That's crazy talk. And a young guy comes along who's probably, when he did this, probably not a lot older than you guys. A guy who's probably 26, 27 years old and goes, oh, just, just, just do an experiment. It's not that hard. Blows the lid off is a smart man. Barbara Scorla is an exceedingly smart man. He wrote a great paper uh, back in the early 80s called uh, Learning It's Not What You Think, It's More Than Spit and Twitches, which is a great title. In fact, that's going to be the title of my upcoming Animal Cognition podcast. I'm not kidding either. Spit and Twitches, where I will interview researchers. That's part of my sabbatical project. Unless they don't give it to me, in which case I'll burn down the building. Um... <laughs> This is so cool. Like, that's really smart. That's, that's, and it's, the other, the other thing, one of the things I love about this experiment and, and experiments like it that I just think are cool is that a good experiment, I look at it now and go, why didn't people think of this in 1930? It's just so obvious. It's like, wait, well, yeah, it's like Darwin comes up with evolution, right? Publishes evolution by natural selection. People go, right, of course, I'm an idiot. I should have thought of that. Right? Newton comes up with his three laws. Everybody goes, of course. Well, why didn't I write it down? I should have thought of that. I'm an idiot. This is the, now, I'm not saying Barbara Scorla is Isaac Newton 
or Charles Darwin. But I will say that in learning, he's a pretty damned important guy. Now, most of his experiments are so much more complicated than this that it's crazy. 15 control groups, literally, things like that. You hear a talk at a conference and it's like, well, I can tune out for five minutes because this is just going to be explaining the control groups. Right? But that, that's one of the things that makes him good. He's a good, meticulous scientist. This is a good remote. Hmm. Oh, there you go. Right in my eye. That's perfect. Because what I want to do really is make things even worse for my eyes. If at all possible. Why are the red dots everywhere? You use this thing. You can make undergraduates chase things. Okay, so it's a very cool experiment, and um, I'm glad you seem to understand it. That's good. Okay. So it seems like it's a stimulus-stimulus connection, at least in uh, sort of well, in, in, in conditioning where the, the, the unconditioned response and the conditioned response are the same. We don't know necessarily, necessarily, necessarily <laughs> if, yeah, I'm just combining those two words into one super word, necessarily. If it's like that in, say, drug conditioning where you get the preparatory response, but I don't see how, evolution's a pretty parsimonious thing. I really doubt that a whole different system has evolved to do preparatory conditioning. It seems exceedingly unlikely. So it's probably stimulus-stimulus all the time. Okay. So, concepts or properties of Pavlovian conditioning. Um, let's think about a learning curve. breakfast, I go hungrier in the middle of the morning than I am when I don't eat breakfast at all. Like I have like four pieces of bacon and toast for breakfast. If I have nothing for breakfast, I can go all the way till dinner time. Happens to me all the time. Yeah. So it's not just me. Yeah. Me too. Okay. We should all just stop eating. Because <laughs> then we'll be hungry. Like it's counterintuitive. It's very weird. Like my stomach's rumbling up here and I eat, you know, probably 1,500 calories this morning. Very weird. Anyway, it's got to be somebody who knows that. It's a, there's only biologists around somewhere in here. Couldn't that be... Wait, this building? Oh, Lucas has a theory. <laughs> no, your stomach's already, uh, or your system's already hungry, so there's no change after okay. not doing anything. Okay. But if you eat, yeah. you're full, you're not hungry, but then when you're hungry again, it's noticeable. Okay, so it's a contrast effect, is what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. I like that. Let's go with that. All right, we'll publish that. Um, so, a learning curve. We got trials down on the. Anybody listening on the internet knows? Send me an email or touch. Twitter's good. Whatever. Response here. I don't know what the response is. We're not going to worry about it. It can be salivation. Salivation's a nice, easy one to understand. No one does it anymore, but it's a nice, easy one. So, the first part we have acquisition. So, when you're getting more and more responding on each trial, you're in the phase called acquisition. Okay, so we'll call this acquisition here. 
That's acquisition. Okay? That's acquisition. Note, this, I said this before, note the steeper the learning curve, the easier it is to learn. Unlike the way that the popular phrase works. When someone says, that's got a steep learning curve. When, it, when, it, when it, it takes a long time to learn, it has a really gradual learning curve, and that's actually harder. There are times when technical terms get misused and they're in your technical field, and it will drive you nuts. And they come into the popular parlance. I had an argument with someone who said, well, sometimes quick doesn't mean easy. I said, well, how, what else could it mean? Really, seriously. Okay. Asymptote, you would know this term from math. So here we have asymptote. This is when things have leveled off. Right? Well, usually, the nice thing to, well, ah, how to put this? In classical conditioning, unlike a lot of other forms of learning, we're really quite interested in, in uh, acquisition. It's, it's just something, it's like, how quickly do they learn? Um, you almost always get, by the way, most of the learning early on, which makes sense. Because you know nothing, right? Then you know a little bit of something, and then a little bit, a little bit more, and it's incrementally less and less until you get to an asymptote. In fact, asymptotes mathematically are defined that way. Now, what we can do now <coughs> is we can put the animal into extinction. And I don't mean we're just going to remove those animals from the planet, because that would be a little harsh. What we can do, though, is we start presenting the CS by itself without the US. Okay? So we present CS alone. No US. Okay? We do that enough times, we actually get what's called extinction. We now get no... The animal will be back to here. So now we're at extinction. Okay. This could all be done in one, well, uh, with, with, with salivary conditioning, for example, this could be done in a day with a rat. Oh, uh, sorry, a dog. With CER, you could do this in a day with a rat, probably, after you've trained it up to push at the bar. Next day, bring the animal back in the box to do this in a CER. He actually is not going to respond at zero. The next day, he's going to start responding here. Called spontaneous recovery. I'm going to skip the next point and talk about it next time, but I'm going to talk about this now, rapid reacquisition. Okay? Disinhibition is going to take me longer than 10 minutes to explain. I don't think you have a question. So we'll come back to disinhibition. But we will get rapid re reacquisition such that now you start to do the training up again. And let's see, it slopes like that, so let's make the slope a little more intense. The reacquisition is more rapid. See, like the slope of this curve is more intense, more, more, uh, it's a higher slope. Now, remind you of anything. Everything happens in savings, right? 
That's what that is, except this is a rat and doing CER. It's a rat doing CER. So it's not... <laughs> this isn't learning list of constant L constant trigrams or something. So it's actually pretty amazing. Why does this happen? Why is there savings? I don't know. <laughs> no one really is sure. It may be the case, so I will start talking about this, that what you've done when you present the CS alone is you are now inhibiting a condition response. Okay? Maybe. Because now the CS is predicting... Instead of thinking goes, at least. The CS is predicting no CR. Or no, uh, no, no US, I'm sorry. Okay? So the CS is predicting no US. So maybe that the next day, what you're getting is inhibition of that inhibition. So it's disinhibition. And when you inhibit inhibition, you get excitation. So maybe that's what explains... The rapid reacquisition, or the savings, as Ebbinghaus would call it. Because conditioning can be inhibitory or it can be excitatory. Excitatory conditioning is when the CS predicts the US. Inhibitory conditioning is when the CS predicts a lack of the US, which is what it's now doing when we put the animal into extinction. Right? It's predicting a lack of the, of the US. And it might be that the next day things are slightly different. And when you change the conditions a little bit, that might inhibit any prior learning that's happened in that box. And the conditions are changed because the day's changed. It's a different day. So therefore, maybe, you are inhibiting everything including the inhibition that the animal learned at the end of the day yesterday. I'm not entirely sure I'd buy that explanation, but it's not a bad one. It's, in, it's got an intuitive... It's intuitively pleasing. I'm just... It seems a little convenient, that's all. It seems like a just-so story to me. So I'm not... I mean, it may be true. Well, it's good that we have some business cards from somebody here. Questions about that? Does that make some sense? I mean, that's, that's an explanation. I don't know that it's a great one, but it's an explanation. All right. So we'll talk about conditioned inhibition, which is... Again, okay, now these are going to be two different, the, the A and B are different CSs. The plus, this is a notation thing you're going to get to get used to. So A and B will be different CSs, different stimuli. The plus is you, I gave a US, the minus is I did not give a US.
So this could be like, you will, you'll often see things like it'll say light plus noise minus, meaning light and a US, noise and no US. So A plus, sorry, B plus, A minus. So what we're doing here is we are conditioning the animal that A predicts the lack of a US. So now we're going to find out, does it act, is it actually an inhibitor? Have we conditionally, has the animal actually learned that A predicts a lack of something? How would we do that? Well, we put A and B together. We put A and B together. And we see what kind of responding we get compared to an animal. So we got one group that's got A and B together. And we see how much responding we get. This is a perfect place for uh, what's going now, but for our uh, uh, CER. And we compare that to an animal that's got no experience at all with A, but we give A and B together. They've certainly learned B plus. So you've got one group that's got B plus A minus. So you've got one group that's been taught this, one group that's been taught this, and then nothing. That, that, that's not a minus, that's nothing. And now we test A and B together. We test A and B together. If we get less, less of an unconditioned response, or sorry, I should probably use conditioned response here, and more conditioned response here, we can say that we have conditioned inhibition to A. Okay, get your waiters and see that. It's called a summation test. Because we're, we're putting the two, two stimuli together. They're what's called compound stimulus now. The other approach we could use is what's called the retardation test. We do A minus, so A predicts the lack of something. And then we see how long it takes an animal to learn A and B together, predict something, versus an animal that's not had this experience. And again, we can, there's two different tests of the same phenomenon of conditioned inhibition. Okay. So there's two different tests of conditioned inhibition. Questions about that? All right, we'll see you next I'll see you next time uh, and we'll continue talking about stuff. Thanks everybody.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.